This is Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is Father Gregory Pine. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all of those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation to us on Patreon. Your donations are used exclusively for the, the support of our work here. Please be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Gregory, happy Easter. Hey, happy Easter to you too. You know, it's still How's Easter, it, right? Not the big Easter. That's right, yeah. It's always it's always good to check when the episode will air, so that way we can determine which liturgical season we will chat up in the outset. And I think we are we are definitely still in the Easter season, so this pleases me no end. Until at least September. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Nothing nah, like absolutely. that late August happy Easter <laughs> greeting. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. There are times in life when you can be so prepared or you can be so ahead of time that you're actually not on time. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to grow in our connaissance or, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that I just said that, to grow in our understanding. Wow. <laughs> yeah, were no, I just, I'm embarrassed. you thinking my friend? You were. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, that, I, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. I have a deep aversion to that ever happening. I'm going to stop. That's I'm going to stop talking. Yep. Pretty soon you'll be renouncing your citizenship. No, I assure we'll you never, that will we'll never, never happen. You You're going to move <laughs> into the French Bible school and that'll be it. <laughs> when I came back to visit the U.S. in what, like August, late August, early September, um, I was staying at the rectory of my parents' parish in Newtown, Pennsylvania, which is like eight, uh, eight-tenths of a mile from Chick-fil-A. There was one day. I would I would call it the most American day of my life when I ate Chick Fil A three meals in a row, um, and uh, I think that that shows the depth to which I am committed to my American citizenship. So fear not, my God friend. bless him. Just to feel something, you went for a little jog, pounded a Chick Fil A milkshake. Well, somebody gave me a twenty five dollar gift certificate, and I think I was leaving for Switzerland the next day. And I was like, burning a hole in my pocket. Should I save this? And the answer was decidedly not, my friend. Especially when I can get four chicken minis for like two thirty. <sighs> Those are the times. Incredible. God bless. Well, he does. we're not here to talk about Chick Fil A or the Easter season uh, today. We want to chat up Walker Percy a little bit. Um, so it, maybe if our listeners don't know who Walker Percy is, Father Gregory, could you take us away with just like the soundbite introduction? Who is this man? Sure, yeah. Um, I think that the people who read Walker Percy are usually interested in reading Catholic literature. And um, a lot of folks start with early 20th century British literature. So the most famous um, you know, authors of whom would be like what Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh on the one hand, and then maybe like G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc on the other hand. And then Americans usually, you know, like to take some pride in their own homegrown American Catholic authors. And so people will gravitate towards Flannery O'Connor, of course. Uh, but she only wrote two novels and is better known for her short stories. And then within this kind of milieu, you have folks who gravitate towards Dorothy Day or Thomas Merton. Um, so this would be like late 40s, 50s, even into the 60s. Um, but the, the, I suppose the best known Catholic novelist of the 20th century in the United States is probably Walker Percy. So, um, yeah, I mean, his, his upbringing, he's from the South, he's from Louisiana. Um, and he grew up idolizing William Faulkner, 
He was actually good friends with Shelby Foote, who went on to become a great historian of the Civil War. Um, but uh, he and Shelby Foote went to visit Faulkner at one point, and he was so overwhelmed by esteem and admiration that he didn't leave the car. So he watched Shelby Foote and William Faulkner have a conversation on Faulkner's porch, and he just he just stayed in the vehicle. Um, but he did his training that reminds, as a. That, well, I was just going to say that reminds me of the of the time that Graham Greene goes to Padre Pio's monastery and is invited to meet Padre Pio oh, yeah. and doesn't. Oh yeah, that I mean, story is terrible. a major dissimilarity. Though is that <laughs> Walker Brizzy didn't sit in the car with his mistress. <laughs> So, yeah, right. You know, you do Wolf. have you do have that. <laughs> you you do indeed. Um, yeah, for those who haven't heard that story, Graham Greene went to Monte San Giovanni with his mistress, which is a bold, bold move. At this point, he was like f way away, falling away from the practice of the faith, and kind of had become to become blah, blah, had started identifying as a Catholic agnostic, which is a paradoxical thing to say. It's an oxymoronic thing to say. Um, but Pro Padre Pio invited him after mass. To, to visit with him, and Graham Greene said no. And when asked why later, he said, because if I were to meet a saint, I might have to change my life. And I suspect that, that man is a saint. <laughs> yeah! Okay. Um, but Walker Percy did his training as a psychiatrist, but then he got tuberculosis, and he had to spend a significant period of time in upstate New York, like Saranac Lake, Adirondack Lakes region, um, uh, recovering. Uh, you know, so like whatever the climate was better and, you know, low stress and extensive treatments. Um, and during that time, he, he kind of transitioned where he became more interested in philosophical and literary things. So, I mean, we're going to go into all this stuff, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, he, mm -hmm. he gets especially interested in how signs work and language works. And then he gets especially interested in like the state of modern man. So that's a, that's a rough sketch. Yeah, and it and it raises a bunch of themes, right? And a very important one is his dissatisfaction with medicine, which kind of grows. I mean, as a, as a young man, and this is this is something that maybe some of our listeners would relate to. Uh, he was a frat lord, uh, which is which. There's just no other way to say it. He pledged a fraternity, was a member of secret societies uh, during his time at uh, Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina, um, and I, I think that's it's important to see how. Percy was Percy was the sort of man who was who was pursuing real worldly success. I mean, this is not this is not a guy who didn't have it right. And as you mentioned, his his friendship with Shelby Foote is something of interest. Uh, his family heritage he he has um, relatives that were Civil War heroes. His uh, cousin or uncle I forget exactly what, what the relationship is who ended up raising him was an accomplished poet and um, lawyer. Uh, and so you, so you have all these relations, you have someone that's tr from a true American gentility who, uh, who really has changed. And I, I think a huge part of that happens, you know, as you suggested, the sanatorium, because at the time there's no cure for tuberculosis. The only cure was rest. So you mm -hmm. end up living a kind of quasi monastic life, a really contemplative life where, where the biggest questions are raised and asked. Uh, you know, and as we'll, we'll go into, uh, per Percy believed previously that they could be answered by medicine. And that's why he was so interested in psychiatry uh, and then found medicine just came up short and pursues pursues other more philosophical, uh, more philosophical uh, interests, you know, as you said, like semiotics. Uh, but I, I think all of those factors are really interesting. Another another part about this, his stay at the sanatorium that I think is important is that at that time, World War II was going on. 
And he had brothers who were away fighting in the war and he couldn't participate in the war effort. So there was a, a, a kind of a deep frustration and particular isolation from, you know, the main event, the main current of American life at that time, which was the, the U.S. participation in the war. So he was catching up on the war through, you know, newspapers and radio broadcasts and was otherwise just at home. And I think that also caused a, a certain amount of existential reflection and crisis in his own life to be separated in that way from, from this major movement. Yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. Like there's just a lot of fodder for deep thought um, in the sense that he's engaging in a scientific pursuit, which is itself very reflective, right? So you have, um, you know, the piece of psychiatry, which is the more kind of diagnostic. And then you have the piece of psychiatry, which is the more prognostic or the more kind of like talk therapy piece as well. And so he's, 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 you know, kind of, uh, He's in it to win it when it comes to this very scientific, but also this very, what would you say, therapeutic, but philosophical dimension of the practice of medicine. And then, um, you know, he has imposed upon him, like you said, a quasi monastic life where he is made to rest. And it's actually during that time that he really came into the practice of the faith. Um, and then there, there are many aspects of his life, which um, I think caused him to question his singularity or caused him to question his place in the world. Uh, so being left out of the war effort was very difficult for all those for whom it was the case. And I mean, you can think of this is just perennial in the 20th, 20th century with like uh, getting a feather, you know, if you didn't go to the Boer War in Great Britain um, right, or, you know, right. you see this theme described in a variety of ways. But but to not participate in the great movements of Western society was an affliction. And I mean, at the root, though, is is an even deeper, what would you call it, alienation? Um, so Walker Percy said that the greatest miracle of his life was that he didn't commit suicide, which sounds, you know, somewhat melodramatic and overdone, but here's the thing. His grandfather committed suicide and his father committed suicide. So it's like in his blood. Um, and I mean, you know, he, he lived a long life. He lived into the 1990s. I think he died of prostate cancer, but like his family was troubled. You know, there were demons in his family history that needed to be exercised. There were like serious medical issues that needed to be addressed. And he was just caught in the grips of all of these. Yeah, these just big ticket items, these big questions. And so he brings this all out in his philosophical essays, in his more kind of popular or more accessible uh, essays, and then in his literature. And it's, yeah, it's just super fascinating for that reason. Right. He's, he's haunted by this, by this need to, need to, need to live and to find out what living means. Uh, he, as you say, both his, his father and grandfather committed suicide and the circumstances of, of his mother's death are also complex. And Percy himself always believed that she committed suicide. Uh, she, she died in a, in a car accident and that's why he was raised by his a relative. I'm, it's, it's a cousin. I'm pretty sure it's cousin. I'm go, I'm settling on cousin. <laughs> and, that, and that's that's why he was raised by his cousin. Uh, so so yeah, there's this sense in which he's haunted by death. Now, a, a part of part of this movement, right? We're talking about Percy as belonging in this kind of list of American Catholic thinkers, but, but Percy was not raised a Catholic, and it's this conversion that is very interesting because that, it, that it's connected with kind of a kind of a few things. He decides to leave medicine. Uh, he ends up he ends up marrying. Um, a young woman that he met actually in the medical field. She was a, a nurse of uh, some kind. Um, so, so 
he gets married and he and his wife uh, decide that they want to become Catholic. And th this, this I think is worth repeating. He, sh he shares this decision with Shelby Foote. The two of them were traveling together and Shelby Foote said this, um, that he was afraid, he was afraid that uh, religion would be a threat to Percy's freedom. So Shelby said, the best novelists have all been doubters. Their only firm conviction, the one that is never shaken, is that absolute devotion and belief in the sanctity of art, which results in further seeking, not a sense of having found. Hmm. So despite the fact that we've set, we've set uh, Walker Percy up to be a seeker, Shelby Foote is worried that his conversion to Catholicism will mean that he has found something and that it will be a kind of end to his freedom as a writer and will limit his ability, his ability to think. Um, what do you make of that, Father Gregory? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's fascinating for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons for which is because I think I've seen that come through that particular concern or that particular doubt, as it were, come through in Walker Percy's own writings. So there's one collection of essays, uh, which I probably wouldn't recommend to our audience because they're just weird <laughs> and really hard to understand. And as I was reading them, I'm like, why am I reading these? I have no idea what's going on right now. Um, but there's one, it's, I think it's called message. So the name of the collection is message in a bottle. And I think the particular, um, the particular essay that I am thinking of right now is also called message in a bottle. And in that collection, uh, so Walker Percy describes the existential state of man in the cosmos, you know, like in the world as that of a castaway. But he says that a lot of us are in the habit of denying our condition as a castaway. And that ends up in a deeper state of existential alienation. So he says, you basically need to know that you are in order to be free. Because if you set about the whole business, denying the reality with which you are encompassed, then you end up, you know, like you, you just end up alienated from your condition. And as a result of which there's no hope for you going forward because only the truth has grace. I, I just found this passage that I took down when I read it and I'm just going to go and read it real quick. He says, then what should we do? Uh, it is not for me to say here that he do this, he's speaking of the castaway, that he do this or that, or should believe such and such. But one thing is certain, he should be what he is and not pretend to be somebody else. He should be a castaway and not pretend to be at home on the island. To be a castaway is to be in a grave predicament, and this is not a happy state of affairs, but it is very much happier than being a castaway and pretending one is not. This is despair. The worst of all despairs is to imagine one is at home when one is really homeless. That's just like, that for me kind of mm -hmm. encapsulates his genius. He's not being melodramatic, right? He's not being macabre. He's not reveling in the fact of our experience of alienation, but he's trying to name it because he thinks that we should call each thing by its proper name because the only way forward is in this truth. And so he wants to grapple with that. And that's, I think, what makes, what makes his writings to be of enduring worth. Similarly, in one of his essays on literary criticism, Percy tells a story of two Boston tourists that go and visit the Grand Canyon. And it's really amazing because uh, Percy is fr Percy's frustrated with their visit when compared to the explorers who first discovered the Grand Canyon. And why? Because the Boston tourist has expectations for what the place is going to be. Well, for one, the name, Grand Canyon. You've, it's, sort of, it's sort of been named and is laid out for you 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 have an impression of what you're coming from. You've seen postcards and photos and watched films about the thing. And then what do tourists do? 
they go to a place and they roll out of a motor coach, which has driven them right up to the edge of it and stand there and take a couple pictures of the Grand Canyon and then get away as fast as possible because it's kind of hot and a little uncomfortable. And Percy's point is that the experience of touring the Grand Canyon of most modern people is a completely different experience than, again, the, the first explorers or, 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 other, or other people that would have first discovered, first seen the Grand Canyon. And there's a, there's a kind of alienation of expectation that happens um, and a, a limited experience that the tourist has in the modern world. And it's another way of, it's another way of, um, it's another way of grappling with this problem of the conception of ideas and the experience of realities that, that you are articulating in that quote from message in a bottle. Yeah. It's like, he, he's fascinating in the way, well, how do I describe this? I once went to a, uh, an art museum in Richmond with father Bonaventure, which had an exhibit on Edward Hopper and hotels. So Ho Hopper was fascinated by, um, the, what would you call it? The installation or the, I don't know, the start of the interstate system. Because once you facilitate travel, you know, so you got new technology, namely the automobile that facilitates um, travel and then a kind of urban sprawl. And so the world then accommodates itself to this new mode of transport. And so you have hotels and motels that crop up and a whole industry along the way. And then people meet in these out of the way places who wouldn't ordinarily meet, but they don't have the same kind of goods around which to congregate. So Hopper paints a lot of people alone in their hotel rooms. And he paints like these sunbathers on this porch, looking at mountains, none of whom have anything to do with each other or like naked women in a state of existential despair, like gazing out windows. It's very, it's very haunted, but you have a similar thing with Percy too, because he's observing a lot of the changes, you know, in the fifties and the sixties. Um, and he's, he's kind of gauging it against our capacity to assimilate new technology and to have life sped up at this rapid, rapid rate. Um, like what does that do to the human condition? One of the things, I mean, I think, I don't know for you, but my, my favorite of his novels is the moviegoer, um, which in itself is a title worthy of comment. Um, but this, you know, this particular protagonist, Binks Balling goes to movies, um, because he likes to see them, you know, like he likes to see the characters. He likes to see the protagonists. And you get the impression that he himself wants to be a protagonist. He himself wants to be seen. Uh, there's a whole kind of St. Therese theology at work in the background. If he could but be seen by God, which is a kind of resolution to which he comes at the end, then his life would mean something. Um, but you only really have this kind of crisis when, you know, your life is made more visible or there is so much more opportunity to be seen and to see, or you're living on a, such a, you know, like on a kind of grand scale. Um, so it's fascinating how, how Walker Percy comments on a lot of these new crises or new existential questions which are posed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Not that they hadn't been thought of in any way, shape, or form previously, but they come to a kind of urgent confrontation um, in this new setting. And um, yeah, it's like as he muddles through his responses, it's not like they're perfect, but it's kind of fascinating because he's, he's one of the first to do it in the way that he does it. The moviegoer is so brilliant because it's... It, it, in some ways it's so heavily biographical percy was known by his frat brothers as being the guy that loved going to movies and for his for his quick quid uh which is how he described that's one of the keys that he describes uh being spooling with you know uh, giving him giving him this great personality but uh, no i absolutely agree the moviegoer is fascinating because the moviegoer is in some ways so passive like the boston tourists 
that are unable unable to confront or grapple or enter into reality. Um, but the moviegoer is frustrated in a way that the tourists aren't because he because he knows that he wants to, but he but he can't. Uh, mm-hmm. So so it, in the moviegoer, Walker Percy is painting us a picture of a mo- you know a modern man who's unmoored who you know, goes from film to film who thinks he has freedom. That's why the car in the moviegoer is such a great symbol. His MG, you know, this convertible is just like the perfect symbol of freedom. He thinks he has everything. He's a young stockbroker uh, about to turn 30. Right. And uh, he, he, he should have it all. Like this guy's the American dream and yet he's, yet he's unmoored. And all he can do again is go from, go from kind of movie to movie. I, I there are two great things that point to, point to uh point to this real existential philosophical dimension of the novel the first is the quote by Kierkegaard that he puts at the beginning so letting letting us know that he's he's entering into some of the questions that Kierkegaard is raising and the the latter is the 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 epilogue which you were referring to Father Gregory which is an homage to Dostoevsky great Russian uh, existentialist and so in these ways he he's a very serious philosopher um, as well as very entertaining, I believe, fiction writer. Yeah, it's, I don't know exactly how best to capture it. So when I read the philosophy, I don't understand it. I'm, unlike Father Bonaventure, I don't have the patience for understanding modern philosophy, which is a character flaw, something that I'm working on. And by working on, I mean, I'm not working on it. Um, but but his philosophical considerations are are deeply rooted in his experience of life. So he had a child who was deaf and that heightened his interest in how signs work. You know, what we referred to earlier as semiotic theory, but he also thinks that, you know, okay, so we as human beings are embodied souls or ensouled bodies, however you want to describe it. So we have this incredible capacity for giving and receiving signs and for investing those signs or drawing from those signs, a real depth of meaning. Uh, and you can think about the whole sacramental order and what that um, you know communicates to us as Christians. And he wants to plumb the depths of that, but he's cognizant of the fact that here we are, and you know many m- movements in the 20th century have kind of evacuated signs of their meaning, and as a result of which we've become very suspicious of them. You know, just think of like the last time you saw a long banner in red, you were like fascism. Or think of the last time you saw a bunch of people marching in step, you know, like without bending their knees, you were like fascism, you know, so, so we're afraid of strong signification. And as a result of which we've kind of, we've kind of weakened signification, we've kind of distanced ourselves from uh, the natural correspondent to a sacramental order. But he's saying like, if we don't have these pointers, if we don't have these signposts in a strange land, if we aren't looking for these messages in a bottle, then we lose our hold, right? We lose our hold on each other. We lose our hold on ourselves. We lose our hold on God. Um, and so in that, in that same essay, message in a bottle where he talks about our kind of plight, he describes it as looking for news from across the sea. You know, so this whole idea of a message in a bottle, you're a castaway, you're on an Island, but you, but you're invested with the sense of hope that there is a message that is coming and that message will be meaningful. That message will be significant. And so you see this kind of bubbling up in a lot of his characters, even though they find themselves in these terrible and sometimes farcical situations, like the book Lancelot is all about you know, the debased sex culture of Hollywood and how very, yeah, how very strange and convoluted it can become. And then Love in the Ruins, which is one of your faves, you know, it's like this whole commentary on race relations, technocracy, devolution of culture, blah, 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 you know, but he's just like, 
his protagonists are all on the lookout. They all have a sense of, you know, like belief or trust or hope that there's something that's still there. And he wants to, he wants to breathe life into that because he's not just earnest or ingenuous about it. He's, he's genuinely convicted. Um, even, even having suffered what he has. I think there's a, one thing that we began with that, that we just kind of glossed over was that we're talking about Walker or Percy as belonging to a kind of movement. And that's true. I mean, he was friends with Flannery O'Connor, but Thomas, Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day weren't at all doing what O'Connor and Walker Percy were doing. And there were kind of other Catholic novelists that, that came and went, uh, like J.F. Powers uh, would be another great one who comes to mind. Uh, I think that uh, I think that one of one of one of the really incredible things was that um, uh, Walker Percy felt a, a real solitude in doing what he was trying to do. He he understood himself to be the the, the last of a breed. Um, he considered himself to be a kind of last gentleman, or was trying to be. I don't think he would have said that he was, but was try, was clearly striving to be a kind of last gentleman of Catholic writing. Um. And that that created a kind of isolation, which he willingly embraced and lived. You know, he lived in this uh, little little community, Covington, Louisiana, right across the lake from New Orleans, near his Benedictine monastery, where he was attached as an oblate and uh, you know frequented mass. There's there's a kind of um, uh, there's an element of uh, the hermetical life present in Walker Percy that, that I think we should underscore too. Yeah. And when you think about the books through which people come to a knowledge of Walker Percy, you know, oftentimes it's, it's the moviegoer, which is their first, yeah, their first, uh, what would you say, kind of exposure to him. But another one that a lot of people like, which is not fiction, it's in fact, a kind of strange parodic twist on a self-help guide is lost in the cosmos. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, Walker Percy is kind of living in his own life and then trying to communicate through his fiction the difference between what it means to embrace one's solitude and then to, you know, departing from the experience of loneliness, then to subsequently lose yourself. There's a difference between being and enjoying a kind of solitude and then losing yourself or dispersing yourself or dissipating yourself in a kind of loneliness which becomes whatever, like frenzied sexual exploration or, you know, depressive contraction spiral or whatever it is, you know? So like he had his fair share of struggles, but he was cognizant of the fact that there was a purpose in the solitude and that God addressed himself to that solitude. So even though he might feel himself to be at a certain level lost in the cosmos, he knew that he had a home in it, even if that home was a home which, you know, was wholly oriented to the only uh, like abiding home or the only abiding city in heaven. Um, so yeah, to like find a place to fit, you know, it, it kind of conditions the way we understand our own happiness. Cause I think a lot of us are looking for, um, a kind of happiness of a fixed or permanent sort here on earth, but it just, it, it can't be, it just simply can't be. And if we, if we set our hearts on that, we're bound yeah, to be disappointed and maybe to, I don't know, to like, to carry out the pursuit sideways. Whereas if we know that we have here, no abiding city, no like place of permanence or fixity, then that helps us to invest more wholly both in the life to come and in the life here. Um, and I think that you see that like, like in what you described with Walker Percy in his literary exploits and then in his own life. Righteous. Um, 
any last comments about Walker Percy? Um, yeah, I, mean, I just have this one, like the second half of the quote with which I began, uh, which I just find to be especially beautiful, but the way in which he describes what it means to look for news from across the sea. So I'm just going to read this and then send it back. So he says, but what is it to be a castaway? Which is to say, what is it to be a human being? To be a castaway is to search for news from across the seas. Does this mean that one throws over science, throws over art, pays no attention to island news, forgets to eat and sleep and love, does nothing in fact but comb the beach in search of the bottle with the news from across the seas? No, but it means that one searches nevertheless, and that one lives in hope that such a message will come, and that one knows that the message will not be a piece of knowledge or a piece of island news, but news from across the seas. I just love that. Yeah, that helps me to be a better knower and lover of God. Insofar as I want to be vigilant, I want to be on the lookout, I want to be attentive to, I want to be intent upon. Uh, and yeah, I mean, a lot of it, though, is just going to be showing up and mucking around. <laughs> <laughs> going to and from the monastery. Hey, Amen. No, it's true. Uh, thanks to all of you who are supporters, our fellow beachcombers, those who wait news across the seas. If you'd like to tie to our work, please consider making a donation to us at patreon.com slash godsplaining. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like, subscribe, leave a 17-star review. I think that's the best one right now. Uh, leave a five-star review. Visit godsplaining.org to shop our merch and to get dates and information for our upcoming godsplaining events. Above all, know of our prayers for you, and we ask for yours in turn. God bless. Thank you.